welcome to another episode of the MMA Lockcast. I'm your host, Manpreet, aka MMA Lock of the Night, and your boy on social media at MMALOT, and also the architect behind the MMA Fight Archive. Make sure you guys check it out for a seven-day free trial with the link in the description below. We got close to 2,400 fighter profiles on there now with close to 60 subscribers as well. That consists of some of the top cappers, uh, analysts, predictors, and even commentators from the MMA industry. So make sure you check it out and see why they have chosen this service to ensure that they leave no stone unturned when they go out there and drop this knowledge on you. So make sure you check it out. Again, link in the description below. This week, we're going to be going over UFC Vegas 80, which is headlined by a lightweight matchup between Grant Dawson and Bobby King Green, a spot for Grant Dawson to potentially show out and show off in his first main event slot that he's going to be getting. And then in the co-main event, we got B. Joe Pfeiffer going up against Abdul Razak Al-Hassan, hoping to come through on another highlight reel finish and continue the hype train down the tracks. It's been a week off since I've been doing a, the uh, MMA Lawcast episode. It feels like forever, but thankfully we had the contender series to bridge the gap and not to mention a bunch of other regional shows that people were able to take advantage of from the Patreon where I do my written breakdowns for LFA, uh, Cage Warriors, as well as the PFL, which has uh, had an event over there in Europe. Uh, let's go over the quick uh, lock of the night and dog of the night predictions from the last UFC card. It was a little bit of a bummer where we had Dan Argueta uh, not look good at all in his matchup there. Um, you know, really got beat up by Miles Johns in that spot. I was expecting Argueta to have a little bit more grappling success and maybe not look like he was tumbling over with every single shot that Miles Johns landed on him. But it is what it is. I got, uh, you know, duped on uh, Dan Argueta's potential there and Miles Johns came through as an underdog shout out to anybody that came through on that that drops the lock of the night prediction record now for 2023 to 84 and 28 for a 75% hit rate still a damn good spot in my opinion we're in the positives and if you guys want the exact numbers in terms of what the lock of the night prediction has been doing this year you can check out the top three lock of the night candidates video that I drop on a weekly basis which will probably drop uh, sometime on Friday Friday, so keep your eyes peeled for that uh, and then the dog of the night really ruffled my feathers there with the Carlo Hamosh getting tapped by Charles Jordan you know Hamosh is a high level BJJ black belt but I think he was uh, underestimating the guillotine and choke game of Charles Jordan and uh, he found himself in a guillotine and was forced to tap that night that drops the lock of the night record now to 46 and 66 for the year for a 41% hit rate but we are still in the green thanks to the plus money that you normally get on the dog of the night spots. Again, if you want to find out those exact numbers as well, check out the top three dog of the night candidates that have dropped on a weekly, weekly video, uh, weekly basis as well. So keep your eyes peeled for that as well. Again, reminder, there is regional MMA this weekend. We got LFA going down on Friday. So if you're looking for breakdowns for that, make sure you check out the Patreon for the lock of the night uh, services. Link for that is in the description below. And yes, there is a Bellator tour event on saturday bellator 300 a monumental event for them where they have three title fights uh lined up as well supposed to be four but ryan bader and linton vassell uh fell out uh and 
but still, we still got three title fights and a, uh, a plethora of great matchups. I believe they have 16 matchups for that card lined up. I'll be focusing on LFA first in terms of getting that done since that's on Friday. And then on uh, by Saturday, I should have all my written breakdowns done on the Patreon for Bellator. And then I'll be looking to drop the Bellator breakdowns on uh, Saturday afternoon. Uh, the card kicks off around 6 p.m. Eastern. So I'll be sure to have enough time in between there for you guys to get the information and my studying done and relay that information to you guys so you guys can make your uh, predictions and bets and whatever you guys want to do. So I appreciate all the love. Appreciate the patience as well. It's been a uh, bit of a long week here, but very happy to get this content out for you guys. Uh, And then lastly, a quick plug for Godzilla Wins. Uh, Giving your guy a platform to drop written breakdowns for the public. Uh, We got the main event breakdowns that normally drop on Wednesdays uh, and then the three best money line spots that normally drop on Thursdays. Those will both be dropping on Friday this week. So if you want to see the links for those, that will be in the description as well. Once the guys over there at Godzilla wins, post them. So keep your eyes peeled for that. All right. Way too much. Uh, way too much uh, talking for the intro here. I want to get right into these breakdowns here. We got 11 fights lined up for this UFC Vegas 80 card. So without further ado, let's get into the first fight of the night, which takes place in the flyweight division between Montana De La Rosa and short notice replacement J.J. Aldrich. Montana was originally scheduled to fight Stephanie Egger on this card, but Egger pulled out and Aldridge, fresh off of victory uh, at the end of August, was more than happy to take the spot to try to continue the momentum that she was able to build from the Leong Na victory that she had uh, achieved. But we'll start off on the De La Rosa side, who's on a two-fight losing streak where she ended up losing to Macy Barber and Tatiana Suarez, which is really starting to go to show which, uh, what the potential and the ceiling of Montana De La Rosa is. I, this is a fighter that I've been high on in the past, and I've cashed on her as an underdog against certain opponents. She has an underrated wrestling game where she's able to get opponents to the ground and dominate from on top, or where she looks career best against somebody like Ariane Lipsky, who has been looking pretty damn good herself recently, uh, and, and then getting the TKO finish in that second round but she was unable to overpower Macy Barber getting that fight to the ground and she was unable to do it against Tatiana Suarez who is pretty much a much 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 better version of uh, De La Rosa but De La Rosa used to actually train up in Colorado alongside JG Aldrich uh, when she wanted to get a change of scenery from where she was training from in Texas and I believe Albuquerque as well Uh, she went up there in 2021 had a couple training camps up there and then decided to go back to her home town uh, and train alongside her husband who used to be a former UFC fighter as well Uh, so interesting uh, angle to this matchup with these two being uh, former training partners as well again De La Rosa at her best utilizes her wrestling and crushes her opponents from that top position on the flip side for JJ Aldrich uh, she uses crisp boxing and a very good striking game which usually keeps her opponents on the end of her jab she utilizes good footwork and more often than not has good takedown defense you know, we saw her stuff four takedown attempts from highly touted prospect Aaron Blanchfield, and she was able to touch her up for about five to six minutes before she found herself in a guillotine choke that Blanchfield was able to complete and get the tap. Uh, then we saw Lipsky have absolute uh, an absolute field day against uh, J.J. Aldrich after she landed a big shot in the first round that seemed to completely deflate J.J. Aldrich, and uh, Lipsky was just able to go out there and have uh, pretty much do whatever she wanted that night. But it was a big win for Aldrich last time around where she was able to uh, deal with the grappling onslaught of Liang Na, uh, reverse it on her a couple times, and then eventually get a TKO finish in the third round. Great performance from her, and I think that this is a great match matchup for Aldrich to go out there 
and just stuff some of the takedowns of De La Rosa or at least work back to her feet if she does get taken down and showcase that she's the better striker. You know, the fact that she took this fight on short notice makes me believe that uh, she had she has a... Uh, an edge over De La Rosa in the training room which is why she was more than happy to take the spot knowing that she probably could deal with the wrestling approach of De La Rosa and then go out there and get off her own striking and showcase that she'll be the one landing more damage throughout this matchup so at plus 125 plus 130 on the JJ Aldrich side and knowing that these have these two have shared a room in the past and Aldrich is more than happy with the short notice aspect of this fight give me Aldrich to go out there land more damage to win this fight by decision Next up, we got a bantamweight matchup between Arichi Lang and Johnny Munoz Jr. We'll start off on the Mongolian murderer side here with Arichi Lang, who's coming off an unfortunate knockout loss to Eamon Zahabi back in June. That was a fight where I believe he was a slight favorite, but it was a little bit of a lackadaisical striking defense moment that he had, where Zahabi was able to land a beautiful left hook to put Orichi Lang on his butt, and he was able to knock him out just over a minute into that matchup. Normally, Orichi Lang showcases a very solid forward movement game where he puts his punches together, throwing volume, and overwhelming his opponents with strikes. His takedown defense could use a little bit of work at, at points still, and I think he's really... Um, working on that aspect especially considering that he is still finding uh, finding himself training alongside the fight ready team he's also joined forces with neuroforce one which is more of a, a gym that relies and and focuses on strength and conditioning which has gotten opponents or or fighters like davison uh, figueredo and henry Sukudo ready for future matchups that they had where they look very good and i'm expecting the same thing from arichi lang here but another aspect of arichi lang's training camp is the fact that he's been very close Hali Alatang recently who is a very solid wrestler and if he can instill some of that wrestling skill set into Arichi Lang where, which would allow Arichi to keep the fight standing where he can take advantage of opponents with the striking advantage he normally has over his opponents uh, the man is a very dangerous guy you know he's only 30 years old he has a plethora of experience 35 fights worth of experience but now he's getting high level experience especially with the amount of fights that he now has in the UFC his opponent this weekend Johnny Munoz Jr. is a BJJ black belt who looked absolutely crap in his last fight against Daniel Santos. The fight before that against Ludovic Shalinian, though, he utilized a very good jab and a good footwork game to keep uh, uh, Shalinian at bay from distance, but we didn't see any of that against Santos. I think it was the aggression of Santos that started to catch up to Munoz, and Munoz was starting to question himself, and he started pulling guard too much. He started relying on his BJJ, and he did get a couple close submission opportunities early in that matchup, but you see him completely completely deflated going into the second and third rounds where we saw Daniel Santos enjoying some top time where he was able to land some big shots from on top but even on the feet he was landing the bigger shots the more damaging shots and it just looked like Munoz wanted out of there at that point but he still saw it to the 15 minute mark he still lost on the judges scorecards you gotta wonder at what point we're gonna get a mix of that from Munoz, right? He needs to go out there and improve his wrestling game, offensively speaking, so he can get to the ground where he can utilize his BJJ black belt, which is, you know, a martial art that he's been training since he's five years old. And you can see it in some of his fights that he's very slick when fights hit the mat. But bridging that gap in terms of getting the striking to the grappling to the mat... That seems to be where he's really struggling. And I think he's going to struggle once again here against the guy in Arichi Lang, who I have in the past said needs to improve his takedown defense. But I feel like he has been making the improvements required and knowing that if he can just keep Johnny Munoz at range, utilize his volume striking approach, keep him on his back foot, 
He should be able to stuff the takedowns that will be a little bit too telegraphed on the Munoz uh, side, and that shall allow uh, Richie Lang to end up in top position, maybe rain down some big shots. Hopefully, his submission defense is on point, and that should allow him to damage and hurt Munoz Jr. over 15 minutes and getting his hand raised by decision. Next up, we got a strawweight matchup between Vanessa Demopoulos and the returning Kanako Murata. We'll start off on the Demopoulos side, who got absolutely battered by Karolina Kovacavich earlier this year. In a fight where she was the favorite, if I'm not mistaken, but that was a fight where she went 0-4 on takedowns, was not even close to sniffing a takedown on Kovacavich, who was having a field day on the feet in terms of touching her up. I think she almost doubled, maybe even tripled her on significant strikes that night, but it showcased the hole in Demopoulos' game, especially in the striking realm. She's a BJJ black belt as well, and she does a good job in terms of getting her opponents to the ground against a certain level of opponent but controlling them from that top uh, position and doing some decent enough damage from bottom eh, you know she leaves a lot of uh, uh, openings and and spots where opponents can kind of just grind her out from that top position and she has been changing a lot of training camps as of late she went from black house to fight ready to factory x and now she finds herself at extreme couture and mostly taking advantage of the ufc pi which is obviously uh there in the headquarters of the ufc as well so it's interesting that she's decided to continuously move training camps as much as she has and i'm curious to see if the guys over at extreme couture uh dennis davis i believe is one of the main coaches there that's helping her out curious to see if they're uh, able to make the improvements required to allow demopolis to break through to the next level but for kanako Murata, she has been out of action for over two years now the last fight she had was the second loss in her professional career which snapped an eight fight winning streak that she had and that was a fight where the bjj black belt verna jandiroba was able to attack with a lot of uh, close submission attempts she didn't really get any to get the tap but she did uh, injure and I believe break the arm of Murata which ended up stopping the fight after that second round giving Verna Jandiroba the victory there by TKO but normally Murata is a very strong wrestler with great top, top pressure she does a great job in terms of stopping the submissions that are coming her way as we saw in the Jandiroba fight but as long as her bones stay intact she can more often than not maintain that top pressure and do some good damage from on top making it look good enough for the judges which is why she's always able to pick up these decision victories over her opponents she even has a win over emily ducati on the regional scene where she was able to grind her out from that top position she's very strong she's very skilled with the wrestling game she needs to work on her striking game a spot where demopolis might be able to have a little bit of success but i expect the majority of this fight to take out in the grappling realm especially with murata able to close the distance drag this fight to the ground stay out of the submissions of demopolis get to at least a half guard or a side control position where she's less threatened by the submissions off of demopolis's back and that should allow her to control this fight get off enough damage make it look good enough for the judges and be victorious in her return so i'm going to take Murata here a little bit hesitant on her chalky money line at minus 300 or minus 350 considering the fact that she's been offered two plus years but I still believe that this is a great stylistic matchup for her to go out there and get her hand raised like I said by decision Next up, we move to the flyweight division where we got Nate Maness going up against uh, Matias Mendonca. Starting off on the Maness side, he's coming off of two losses to Dagestani wrestlers Umar Nurmagomedov as well as Tagir Ulanbekov. And now he gets a Brazilian. So a little bit of a change up in terms of what he's been used to fighting. But he is a solid fighter when he can get his game going. 
that game is his boxing and his striking game. He has great combinations. He does a or he, he throws a great jab down the pipe to keep his opponents at bay. But he also has big power that he can follow up behind the jab to hurt his opponents and put them away. Him at his best is the Tony Gravely fight. A fight where he stopped the takedowns of a very solid wrestler and then went out there and just battered him on the feet with big shots and then put him away in the second round. That's what he's going to need to do here against Matias Mendonça, who's an explosive Brazilian striker, but also does a great job in terms of dragging his opponents to the ground and controlling them from that top position. Six of his 10 victories have come in the first round, which makes you believe that he's quite reliant on that early finish, but he also has four wins by decision where he's been able to drag opponents to the ground and grind them out from that top position. I think those four victories came over questionable opponents, although the Pedro Nobre win was pretty impressive considering that Nobre is a very experienced fighter, but Nobre was also up there in age, and I think that Mendonca's strength, youth, and explosivity was too much for Nobre to deal with. And I think that we'll see Mendonca struggle to keep Maness down here, and that could potentially open up some good spots for Maness in the second and third rounds of this matchup. We saw in the first and only loss in Mendonca's career last time around against Javid Bashrat, where Javid did a great job of using his jab and his footwork to keep Mendonca at distance in the first round, and then in the second and third rounds, he reversed the takedown attempts of Mendonca and absolutely butchered him from that top position with elbows and ground and pound. If Maness can replicate what he did in the Tony Gravely fight, this plus 220 on Maness looks amazing and looks like a steal because he in my opinion is the better fighter over 15 minutes he just needs to stuff a couple of the early takedowns and avoid that early big power of Mendonca I don't understand the chalky line here on the Brazilian which is why I'm going to go with Nate Maness here and I think he actually finds a finish I'm going to call it a third round TKO after he stuffs the takedowns and takes command of the pace and dictating the pressure of the fight allowing him to get the late finish in this matchup so give me Nate Maness to pull off the upset. Next up, strawweights going at it here where we have Karolina Kovalkiewicz going up against Deanna Belbita. Starting off on the Kovalkiewicz side, things have been rainbows and sunshines for her ever since returning from her retirement. She was 0-1-5, which led to her retirement. But since returning, she is now 3-0. She's finished the first opponent where she was able to choke out Felice Herrig, but has picked up back-to-back -back decision victories over her last two fights, most recently over the aforementioned Vanessa Demopoulos, who fights earlier in this card. Demopoulos was unable to get the fight to the ground, and Kovalkiewicz did a great job in terms of keeping that a fight upright. Kovacavich, for as long as we've known her, the 37-year-old, is really good in the striking room, and she showcased that in her last matchup. She throws in combinations, she throws down the pipe, and she has a great jab as well. Uh, the part of her game that's improved the most since her return is her grappling from an offensive standpoint where she's able to get fights to the ground and control her opponents from that top position and from the defensive realm where she's able to stuff takedowns and keep fights in the striking realm where she more often than not has the advantage over her opponents. I think that training over there at American Top Team is really paying off for her. Her opponent this weekend, Deanna Belbita, is uh, one or sorry two and one over her last three matchups. Most recently, picking up a big uh, decision victory over Maria Oliveira back in June. 
That was a fight where she stopped the takedown heavy approach of Oliveira. And whenever they were back out in distance, we saw her use her uh, patented forward pressure and volume style approach, which is very live no matter who she ends up facing, especially if she's able to keep fights in the upright position. I'm expecting Kovacavich to go out there and try to use some grappling to shake things up, but I expect this fight to play out in the grappling realm, or sorry, the striking realm for the most part, especially considering how impressive I've been with Belbita off of her back in terms of being active and throwing up submissions and looking for reversal opportunities there might be still a little bit too much clock being eaten up when she's looking for those spots but i still like the fact that she's actively looking to get back to her feet so she can get back to her bread and butter which is volume striking so i'm expecting the majority of this fight to take place in the volume striking realm uh where kovakevich might be the crisper striker but i think the volume and the optics of belbita continuously moving forward and throwing shots and tucking her chin in where she's really protecting herself from getting hurt too badly from again the better technical striker i think that makes it look better for the judges and as her being the underdog around that plus 130 range i think she's worth a spot shot here i get it kovikevich has way more experience against way higher levels of competition and she's been looking really good over her last three fights but i think this is all about styles and babita is a fighter at 27 years old getting in good experience right now in her last couple fights improving every time we're seeing her and if she's able to keep fights in the striking realm she's good with her volume and it makes it look good enough for the judges that they could potentially see it in her favor so as long as she doesn't get pinned up against the cage for an extended period of time or gets grinded out on the mat, I'd be surprised if Kovacavich is able to do that here against Belbita. This fight takes place in the striking realm. It's 50-50. Give me a shot on the underdog here in Belbita, and I think she picks up her win, uh, uh, the biggest win of her career over a, for, over a former title challenger in Karolina Kovacavich, and I think it comes by decision. Next up, we move up to the light heavyweight division where we got Philippe Linz going up against Iwan Kutelaba. Starting off on the Linz side, he's on a three-fight winning streak since dropping down to light heavyweight. Most recently, he went uh, to a 50-minute decision against Maxime Grishin in a fight where he completely overpowered him and out-muscled him in the clinch realm. Linz is still very big for this light heavyweight division, especially with spending the majority of his career at heavyweight. But he showcased that he can still put together deadly combinations to knock his opponents out like he did against Ovin St. Prue, but also has the ability to slow fights down, pushing his opponents up against the cage and doing good enough work with his uh, dirty boxing and some knees in the clinch to stay active enough so that the referees uh, are unable to separate them from any stagnant uh, moments. I like that about Linz. He's still trying to be uh, effective from either getting a quick finish or knowing what to do to be effective over 15 minutes. His opponent this weekend, Iwan Kotilaba, snapped a three-fight losing streak last time around where he landed a big shot on Tanner Bozer and eventually got a ground-and-pound victory over him. But we know what Kotilaba's ceiling is, right? He's either an early finisher or, you know, very rarely he can go out there and outgrind his opponents with some of his wrestling background. But that doesn't happen much. You know, he tried doing it against Ryan Spann, worked against him, he got tapped out that night. He tried doing it against Johnny Walker, Put himself in his mission, got tapped out that night. And then he tried doing it against Kennedy and Zetchigu, and he got finished in the second round. I feel like a, a veteran like Philippe Lin should be able to see the big shots coming his way from Kutilaba. Maybe uh, wears on him as well, putting him in the clinch and just using his bigger body and um, more strength 
to really just uh, wear on that gas tank of Kutilaba and then continue to rinse and repeat that. And don't, you know, Kutilaba is the power puncher, don't get me wrong, but Linz has some pop in his shots as well. And we know that Kutilaba can be hurt and put away too. So uh, I'm going to lean with the Linz side here. Another underdog that I'm kind of surprised is the dog here. I feel like Linz has more paths to victory in this matchup. And as long as his durability continues to hold up, where is Kutilaba going to beat him? You know, I believe that Kutilaba's win condition is very much tied to him getting an early finish in this matchup. I don't see him out grinding Philippe Linz over 15 minutes. I just don't see it happening. Give me Linz, and I think Linz, uh, I'm going to say either by decision or a late TKO in this spot. All right, next up, this one is a highly uh, talked about matchup uh, in the featherweight division between Alexander Hernandez and Bill Algio. Now, Alexander Hernandez is looking to go back down to featherweight after unsuccessfully making that cut back against Billy Quarantillo two fights ago. That was a fight where we saw a classic Billy Quarantillo fight where Hernandez had some good early success with his uh, speed and striking advantage. But Billy Q started to catch up to him with his cardio, weaponizing his cardio as he usually does, and then eventually getting that second round finish after overwhelming Hernandez in the striking realm. Hernandez bounced back with a big win over Jim Miller earlier this year, where he showed a patient striking approach where he was able to utilize his speed and power to get to the punches and target quicker than Jim Miller was able to. But Jim had some success of his own, where we've even seen uh, judges score rounds one and three for him um, separately. Uh, I could also be mixing that up on fan scoring as well, but Jim Miller got off some good damage as well. But we saw a good disciplined approach, a patient approach from Alexander Hernandez to go out there and get that 15-minute victory. However, whenever he's fighting somebody that can push the pace against him or nullify that early success that he normally has against his opponents, that's where we see him start to slow down. And I just don't like this move to featherweight for him. I feel like this is a spot that he could end up slowing down against Bill Algio again. I get it. I've seen people making the comparison saying that there's a non-comparison between Bill Algio and Billy Quarantillo. But I still believe that Algio's awkwardness, unorthodox style, and knowing that he has the better gas tank in this matchup will allow him to push the gas or at least step on the gas in the second and third rounds to really start to put it on Hernandez, uh, wear on Hernandez, maybe even look for takedowns or even just putting Hernandez into uncomfortable positions and just utilizing his better gas tank to get the victory here. I like Algio, um, you know, especially at this line now, minus 120. He was minus 160 earlier this week, and now we see a bunch of love coming in on Hernandez, pushing Algio down to minus 120. I'll take that. I'll be happy with that. You know, I think that Algio, uh, this might be close early, but I think in the second and third rounds, we'll see his uh, unorthodox style, his unorthodox movement really start to make it hard for Hernandez to get off on his own shots and for Hernandez to land cleanly enough uh, on uh, Algio here. So I think uh, Algio starts to pull away with this in deep water, maybe even gets a late finish in this matchup. But I'm going to go with Algio. I'm going to go against the line movement here and go with Algio to win this uh, probably late, maybe even by submission. All right, next up, we got a banger here in the lightweight division between Drew Dober and Ricky Glenn. This is a matchup where both guys are coming off of devastating knockout losses. We'll start off on the Drew Dober side, who got knocked out by Matt Favola earlier this year in a matchup where he was a pretty big underdog, but that fight just showcased why you can't really trust him as a minus 400 or minus 300 favorite in some of these spots. He's a great fighter. Don't get me wrong. He has great combinations, power, and agility early in fights, and he has a great uh, amount of experience now in the UFC, especially with him eclipsing his 10-year anniversary with the promotion 
but like he's a guy that is clearly capped at a certain spot. You know, he he hasn't had anything longer than a three-fight winning streak in the UFC. This is the third time a, a fighter has snatched uh, a four-fight winning streak from him. Uh, in the past, it's been guys like Tiago Moises, I believe, um, Islam Mahachev, uh, and then now Matt Frivola. I could be off about the Tiago Moises part, but one of those high-level guys that were able to snatch it away from him. But Drew Dober, at his best, utilizes forward movement, utilizes combination striking, mixing it up to the body, opening up the head, and going up high with some hooks. That's him at his best. He's going up against Ricky Glenn here, who is a 34-year-old veteran with over 30 fights of experience now. He had an extended layoff uh, after his draw against Grant Dawson. Uh, he came back earlier this year and got knocked out by Christos Yagos. Ricky Glenn is a, a veteran's veteran. Uh, a guy that's pretty much good anywhere a fight goes. He has solid striking. He has a slick jujitsu game. He has decent wrestling as well. But I find it interesting that he decided to go away from Team Alpha Male after that Grant Dawson fight. Open up his own gym, I believe in Iowa, if I'm not mistaken. And he's pretty much just been training by himself there. Um, you know, maybe he has a couple training partners there, but nobody that we really even know about. Uh, but I, I question his durability. I question his ability to come back from uh, some of the, you know, near career uh, ending surgeries and injuries that he's had that he's been battling and trying to come back from. I think there's a back issue, if I'm not mistaken, that has kept him out for so long. But I think he's going to be uh, behind the, the ball here against a guy like Drew Dober, who likely has a speed advantage and likely has a power advantage as well. And I think that will ultimately give us a knockout for the Drew Dober side. But I don't trust him at this number. This number is just too high for me to trust for Dober because Ricky Glenn is absolutely capable of putting the power back on him and possibly getting a knockout victory of his own. So... Fight doesn't go to the decision. You know, I mean, let's go with violence in the spot as both guys are capable of putting each other's lights out. I'm going to say that it's Drew Dober just for a prediction's sake, but I don't trust him at this number. This will be a closer fight than the odds suggest, but I expect violence to be the one that comes through. Give me Ricky Glenn by KO. Or sorry, Drew Dober by KO. All right, that brings us to our next matchup in the welterweight division where we got Alex Morono going up against Joaquin Buckley. We'll start off on the Morono side here, who had a big guillotine victory over Tim Means last time out. And that was a fight that he was getting touched up in the first round by the veteran Tim Means. But it was an ill-advised uh, takedown attempt from Tim Means that opened up that beautiful guillotine choke that Alex Morono loves to hit on his opponents. And it's so weird how Morono fights, because this guy's a solid BJJ black belt, but he never really chases takedowns. He prefers putting pressure on his opponents with his footwork and his combinations and hoping he can either knock these guys out or out-volume them so they're unable to really pick up the pace and get much back. Um, he had a very solid four-fight winning streak, which started with the win over Donald Cowboy Cerrone, uh, you know, going through David Savada, Mickey Gall, and Matthew Summersberger. And then he had a solid two-and-a-half rounds against Santiago Ponzinibbio at the end of last year. And he was two-and-a-half minutes away from picking up the biggest win of his career and extending his winning streak to five fights. But... A big shot from Santiago Ponzinibbio hurt him very badly, and Ponzinibbio was able to get him out of there. And that's where you start to wonder, because durability is a part of the game for Morono. Durability is something that has allowed him to take the damage that he has, but still allow him to go out there and out-volume his opponents. He's a guy that takes a big shot or two big shots, but comes back with four, five, six shots of his own, which is why he's always favored when the judges' scorecards are involved. 
but I think he's going to struggle against guys that are power punchers, against guys that are willing to bite down on their mouthpiece and really put it on Morono. So we've been seeing some better lateral footwork from Morono over his last couple of fights, but I still feel like when he does have to let it go and exchange in the pocket, because he's more of a puncher than he is a kicker, he still can lead himself to getting hit. He's not the most technical with his striking. He leaves a lot of openings. And I think that's what's going to cause him to suffer a defeat here at the hands of Joaquin Buckley. Now, Buckley's coming off a knockout victory over Andre Fialio earlier this year. But before that, he had a two-fight losing streak against Nasruddin Imavov and Chris Curtis. He had a good start to the Chris Curtis fight before he got caught in the second round and got knocked out. But this is a great stylistic matchup for Buckley, in my opinion. This is a fight where they're going to have pocket exchanges, and I believe the power and agility of Buckley is going to end up catching Alex Morono off guard and allowing Buckley to get a knockout victory in this spot. Again, Morono could make it look better in terms of being the better minute winner, being the guy that's throwing more output, being the guy that's landing more output. But I think it's just a matter of time before Buckley is able to just plant, land a big shot, hurt Morona badly, follow up, you know, shark, smelling blood in the water essentially, and going out there and getting a finish of his own. Hilarious that I'm using a shark reference when Alex Morono, his nickname is the Great White. But uh, I think Buckley wins this fight. I think Buckley catches him, and I think Buckley puts him away. Give me Buckley by knockout. That brings us to the co-main event between uh, Joe Pfeiffer and Abdul Razak Al-Hassan. This fight goes down in the middleweight division, and this could be a fight where the Joe Pfeiffer train continues on down the tracks. Right now, he's on a four-fight winning streak, which includes his uh, contract-winning performance over Ozzy Diaz back on the Contender Series uh, last year. I believe it was week one that he performed on, got the big knockout, and got the contract. Since then, he's been able to knock out Alan Amadovsky and Gerald Mearshart, showcasing that he has big powers in his hands. But originally... You know, he's a B, I believe he's a BJJ black belt. He normally comes from a grappling background where he's able to take his opponents to the ground and grind them out, finding finishes from that top position or just grinding them out to a decision victory. But since coming back from snapping his arm on his first opportunity on the contender series against Dustin Soltzfus, I believe that was 2018 or 2019, uh, he's been nothing but a striker. He's going out there showcasing his hands, showcasing that he has confidence in throwing his hands and putting these opponents away. And he just recently said in an interview, he's going to continue to take unranked fights until the UFC bumps him up in his contract. And it feels like they're kind of giving him a layup here in Abdul Razak Al-Hassan, who's going to be at a, uh, a reach and height disadvantage. And that probably favors Pfeiffer in terms of being able to get his power shots off from that distance uh, that he likes to operate at. But Razak Al-Hassan is no slouch, right? He, he can be knocked out. He has had some durability issues in the past. But this man can crack and this man has solid experience. He's 12 and 5 right now. He's 2 and 1 over his last three fights. He's 38 years old, so maybe he's starting to slow down a little bit, and that's where Pfeiffer can really take advantage of him. But uh, Al Hassan will throw in return. Al Hassan will look to kind of, you know, wear on him in the clinch, just like he did against Claudio Hibero, and then try to explode on him in the second round and get that knockout. So I'm never on board with. You know, paying heavy juice on these prospects who are reliant on early finishes to get the wins. You know, the one that always comes to mind for me is Raul Rosas Jr. He's just going out there and just absolutely shellacking dudes. But then when he finally faced somebody that can provide him some resistance, we saw him come up short. And I think it's just a matter of time before Joe Pfeiffer comes against somebody who's not going to go out there easy or uh, to 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 get out of there easily. Now, again, I believe the the range, the power, uh, that's all in Pfeiffer's advantage here. 
I would feel more comfortable with the fight doesn't go to decision in this spot than I would the chalk on the Pfeiffer line. Uh, more often than not, if you guys have been watching me for a while, I would more often not just go out there and fade Pfeiffer, and I'd pick Al Hassan. However, I'm okay now with realizing when there are layup matches being given to fighters. This is one of those spots. Joe Pfeiffer should be able to go out there, keep Al Hassan at distance, counter him whenever Al Hassan throws those overhand rights, leaving openings down the pipe, and he should be able to get that knockout victory in the spot. So I'm going to go Pfeiffer. Um, maybe even inside the distance. Maybe he tries to show off his BJJ chops, something that he's been keeping under his sleeves uh, since he's been able to just go out there and easily knock these guys out. But violence is my kind of best spot in this fight. No matter the chalk, I think no matter who ends up winning, it's probably going to come by finish. I'm going to go with Joe Pfeiffer, but no way in hell am I going to pay that minus 450 line. And that brings us to our main event of the evening in the lightweight division where we got Grant Dawson going up against Bobby Green. Grand Dawson is on a solid streak right now. The guy's been killing it, picking up his biggest win in his last matchup where he absolutely uh, dominated Demiris Magulov in the grappling realm. I believe it was 13 and a half minutes of a 15-minute fight or 12 and a half minutes of a 15-minute fight that he was able to get takedowns and control his Magulov. His Magulov is a highly, you know, uh, an elite fighter, a guy that normally showcases solid grappling defense and an ability to go out there and outstrike his opponents. But... Grant Dawson just had him muzzled. Grant Dawson had a great, uh, did a great job in terms of timing his takedowns, getting the fight to the ground, and then just dominating from on top. I've long criticized him for having a uh, sketchy gas tank, but he's gone out there and continuously proven me wrong. Gets the late finish against uh, Leonardo Santos. Gets the late finish against Jared Gordon. Um, has the most amount of control time out of any round uh, in the third round of his last matchup against Demiris Magulov. Now is going to be his first opportunity to fight over five rounds, and we'll see if he can do that against a guy like Bobby Green. He has a clear grappling advantage over Green, but Green has a clear striking advantage over Dawson. The question is, can Green stop the takedowns? I just don't see that happening. Green has not been fighting many grapple-heavy fighters over his last several fights, other than Islam Mahachev, who was able to go one of two in takedown attempts and only take two and a half minutes to put him away. I think Dawson is going to struggle a little bit in terms of putting Bobby Green away, but I don't think that's going to leave opening for Bobby to uh, get his hand raised here. I think we'll see Dawson land the takedowns, get control time, all while catching his breath and ensuring that he can go a solid 25 minutes grinding out Bobby King Green so that he can pick up a decision victory. So I'm kind of looking more so at Dawson by decision, which is at a nice, nice plus money line. The over four and a half, which is at a nice plus money line. Um, you know, historically speaking, Bobby Green is a tough guy to put away. You know, besides the Drew Dober knockout and the Islam Mahachev uh, finish, you know, Dawson, um, he's kind of aggressive on the map, but knowing that he has 25 minutes to go in this matchup, does he go for the kill early? You know, does he try to expend his energy trying to get a finish so that he can, uh, you know, wow, uh, you know, the, the UFC brass in his first main event slot? Or does he just go out there and just secure victory? Control this fight. Don't give Bobby Green an inch, but also don't overextend at any point where he doesn't uh, end up getting reversed or or give Bobby Green as an opportunity for an, a comeback, a reversal, getting back to the feet so he can get back to his striking. I just don't see that happening. I think we're going to see Dawson grind this fight out over 25 minutes, win this fight by decision. I'm not so hot on his money line, but I feel like this is a spot that he can go out there and still get his hand raised. So give me Dawson, Dawson by decision.
There you guys go. Breakdowns for all 11 fights for this UFC Vegas AD card. Reminder, there is Bellator 300 this weekend as well. That breakdown won't come out till Saturday afternoon, so keep your eyes peeled for that. If you're looking for LFA breakdowns, you can find that on the Patreon page. Link for that is in the description below. Not for the MMA Fight Archive, but for the Lock of the Night Patreon page. Check that out. Appreciate all the love. Appreciate all the support. Appreciate all the patience. I'll see you guys uh, tomorrow, Friday. I'm going to have a lot of content dropping for you guys. The normal segments that I drop for you guys. Lock of the Night candidates, Dog of the Night candidates, um, three best prop bets, and the Locky Trinity slash Locky Two-Step. And then back on Friday for, or sorry, back on Saturday for the Bellator breakdowns. All right. I just, I just love talking. I just miss you guys so much. Love you guys. Appreciate you guys. Hit that like and subscribe, and I'll see you tomorrow. Peace.